Welcome to Movies Inc, the business of film, here to inform and entertain on all things film business. I'm Sarah, founder of ES Collab, an executive producing and business affairs company based in New York. And I'm Charlotte, a film and theatre producer based in London. Each episode, we're joined by an awesome guest, producers, lawyers, executives, or creatives who have been there, done that. They've made the big and small films, the films no one saw and the films everyone saw. And they're here to tell you all about the big and small mistakes they made, what they learned, and hopefully impart some advice about the business we call film. Hi, Charlotte. Sarah. Week three. Week three. Episode three. How are you feeling? I am fine. I did have COVID. Yes. Same. I I think I had the OG COVID in March 2020, although we weren't into the testing back then, so everyone was just at home. But I did. My boyfriend got COVID uh, before Christmas and had to spend Christmas on his own in isolation. I got COVID on the officially on the 2nd of January, but I'm pretty sure I know where I picked it up. Where'd you pick it up There from? was a bit of kissing strangers on midnight <laughs> on, on New Year's Eve, wasn't oh, there? Wow. I mean, I hope Alex isn't listening. He was one of the strangers. Oh, that's good. <laughs> How about you? I'm feeling much better. My gross cough has gone. Fantastic. Love that. Yeah. Love that for yeah. you. Tested positive Christmas Eve. I was like ready to not work for like two weeks, right? And, then, and guess what? Yeah. <laughs> you couldn't have worked even if you wanted to. Yeah, it was just like forced couch time, which wasn't bad, but there's a difference between like being healthy and being on your couch of your own volition and just like lying in your own filth and being comfortable with that as opposed to being forced to stay on your couch and just feeling like crap. Yeah, yeah. It's not really a staycation if you're unwell. And also because Michael was sick as well and he stayed home the entire time, I couldn't watch Gilmore Girls on repeat. Well, what else is there to do when you have COVID? I know. I know. Anyway, but it's been a bit of a shit show for the film industry, this little COVID business. <laughs> I mean, what's your experience? Everything was going so well. And then suddenly just COVID <laughs> just comes in and just, I mean, the short film I was meant to shoot just before Christmas, we had to cancel because we had COVID amongst the the crew just on our first on our first shoot day so that kind of went a bit belly up which was very sad Mm. Um, but I guess that's nothing compared to the impact on productions that actually have money and actually have some higher stakes Um, I know the Batman which was filming in London at the beginning of the pandemic was really hard hit and I think their budget went up by 30 percent just because of COVID delays and then in you know all the COVID protocols that's put in um it's just a crazy impact on the business side of film when you have spent years and years raising money at a particular budget level for your film and then suddenly you're being told well that's nowhere near enough money to achieve what you're kind of trying to do and that can be enough to scupper a whole the whole project which is so sad yeah for sure but not even that like then you have production insurance which isn't insuring against COVID related interruptions, which then means like the completion guarantors don't want to guarantee like that's an exclusion for them as well. 
And then how do your investors feel safe? What is the situation with insurance? Because in the UK, there's the production restart scheme, which I guess is useful for bigger productions, but for something like a short film that I've, I've done a couple of shorts in during the pandemic and it's not a useful tool at our budget level. But obviously for, for people with a bigger budget, it could be useful. But what are they doing in the private kind of sector where or in america i should say where the government doesn't look after people yeah exactly because i was going to say in australia you have the temporary interruption fund but even that like there are so many conditions to it and it's not like okay i'm starting to make a movie and now i'm just going to apply for this yeah they're essentially the government's insuring their insurers but in the u.s there is no equivalent essentially what it means is you have to like keep as flexible as possible like make sure that all of your locations can easily be rescheduled and any deposits that you're paying can easily be refunded and that your like suspension and termination language is as broad as can possibly be, which does really also suck for the artists because they don't have any sort of guarantee of, well, I'm actually going to be booked out for the next eight to 12 weeks. Um, They're really at the whim of producers, but at the same time, you know, producer has to protect the money and be able to restart without having to pay out a whole bunch if they end up needing to stop for COVID. Yeah. I guess the flip side of this is that there's, you know, since the pandemic started, there's also more streamers, there's more people, there's more production companies vying for all that same talent. So you kind of have to be pushing things into production quicker totally, in order to keep that to feed this massive demand that you're getting from the audience who have literally sat there and finished Netflix <laughs> during 2020. Yes. So the streamers need to keep pumping out all that stuff. So they, they are just having to pay for this, I guess. Someone is paying. And I guess, you know, Apple's a, a trillion dollar company now and getting much more into the space. So I guess there are people who are willing to pay it. And then, but what is that doing to any kind of indie industry? Um, the independent industry is just unable to then... They're just shrinking their their vision and their film so that it's one location, it's two actors, it's much smaller than maybe what they were thinking, the stories they were trying to tell before or the stories that they still want to tell. But practically, it's an impossible task now. I mean, Netflix did that anyway with Malcolm and Marie, so it's not really <laughs> even limited to the indie producer. But one thing I will say is, though, is it's made, like, there's definitely been a doc boom because... Mm. If you think about it, like you can license archival footage, you can, you know, have interviews via Zoom, you can do all of this stuff, you can operate on a skeletal crew, you don't need, you know, seven different heads of department and all the rest of it. So, um, yeah, I mean, one thing I noticed in 2020 is that I was working more on doc stuff than on narrative and that was the first year ever that that's happened but also and I think documentaries seem to be cutting through quite a lot through that because there is so much noise and so much content out there and something like Blackfish or Seaspiracy like everyone's everyone watches it and everyone talks about it and it kind of launches a lot of organic 
social posting and people talking about it in the street. I do agree with you though, because like I do think that docs have become, and maybe it's just because, or maybe it's that we've gotten older. Like I do, <laughs> I do feel though that there has been a lot more interest in the past five years in documentaries. And yeah, I mean, something like Making a Murderer really captured the attention of not just, you know, the US, but the world. Yeah, and like the jinx, right? Yeah, as well. totally. And so I think it's those sorts that kind of people realise that, well, first of all, documentaries have the ability to actually like catalyse social justice and, you know, change and all the rest of it, but that you don't need a breakthrough documentary, like a groundbreaking documentary for it to be interesting. Like there are interesting stories on the street everywhere you go and that there has been more of an appetite for it. So this week we have a couple of great producers on the podcast who also work in the documentary space. Well done. Uh, we've got Virginia Whitwell and Nick Batsius from Good Thing Productions. Virginia is a highly experienced producer with over 20 years production experience. Look at her IMDb. It's amazing. Uh, and Nick is a long-standing member of the Australian film industry, having worked in acquisitions and as a producer for years and also Dead Set Legend. I mean, yeah. both of them are. <laughs> both Had of so them are. so much fun talking to them. <laughs> we, uh, we both want jobs. <laughs> immediately. <laughs> but uh, Nick, I mean, Nick and Virginia's production credits are almost as long as Meryl Streep's list of Academy Award nominations. Almost. Almost. <laughs> um, their credits include Australia's highest grossing feature documentary, the award-winning That Sugar Film, and A Month of Sundays and All for One. And they have had amazing success recently and we're all very excited to see Nitram, which was at Cannes last year and has just swept the Actor Awards in Australia at the end of last year. Yeah, I mean, they cleaned up and anyone else nominated shouldn't have even bothered to show up, realistically. Except for Monica Zanetti. Yes. <laughs> Although her, her award ceremony her, was, it was hosted a different, on different night, different night. It was. Yeah. Oh well. Um, Go on. Awesome. <laughs> Let, let's get to it. Let's get to it. Nick, Virginia, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having us. Hello. So it would be best if to kick us off, you could just each tell us a little bit about who you are, where you come from, how you got to where you were. Off you go, Virgie. Well, I'm Virginia Whitwell. Um, I'm head of production and a producer at Good Thing Productions. Uh, Nick and I have been working together for, I think we're coming up to our 10-year anniversary and um, started Good Thing Productions about three years ago off the back of Madman Production Company. Um, I hail from the UK. I worked, I've worked in film production for about ugh, 27 years now. Started off being a runner on shows like 101 Dalmatians at Pinewood and Shepparton back in the day and then came over here for Star Wars in... 2002 and then gradually made my migration to the Australian film scene which has been fantastic and and thoroughly enjoyed it ever since working on some great shows with Nick like Save Your Legs and Month of Sundays and more recently The Australian Dream and uh, most currently Knit Ram and a co-pro with New Zealand called New Tuesday. Um, g'day I'm Nick Batsius, I'm less impressive than Verge um, <laughs> but no I've been working in film for about 20 years uh, starting with Madman Entertainment in Australia um, in sort of an acquisitions and business affairs role, um, which I did for about 16 or 17 years. But towards the back end of that experience, also set up the Madman production company, 
Um, and uh, that business ran for about sort of, it was a sort of natural evolution of, of Madman's business in terms of getting closer to IP um, and, and, and making things as opposed to just financing them. Um, and one of the early productions um, I did as part of that experience was Save Your Legs where I met Verge. Um, so she was the first person I called when I was saying Madman Production Company. Um, and then about three years ago, we bought that business out from Madman and started Good Thing Productions. And as Virgie said, it's been a, a fairly blessed run so far. We've, we've started obviously with the momentum of having had Madman, that history with Madman behind us. Um, but yeah, we've had a lovely run across uh, both docs and narrative films. And uh, certainly our remit is to, to look both at that sort of feature length stuff as well as, as episodic long form television um, and even uh, some factual television as well. So really the, our, our remit is quite wide. Um, we just look to find the best fit format for the idea at hand. Was starting Good Thing a semi-spontaneous decision as much of a spontaneous decision that can be or was it a long time coming? Uh, look, I think it was, it, was, it was always wanting to start a production business. And the opportunity came, obviously there was a, a real sort of, not just pragmatism, but uh, logic to doing it within the Madman family at the time. But it's, and, and look, Madman are still a very close ally of our business, um, both as, as friends and strategically in a business sense. But as I said, our remit is more than just film, you know, and more than just documentary, it's TV, it's, you know, it's, it's as I say, whatever the format, best format is. Uh, Madman's business is distributing films. Right. Um, so it made sense perhaps rather than being on the inside working out to be on the outside working in. Um, so whilst there's very close partners of ours, um, on, uh, on the film side there, you know, we work with other partners on other, other formats. So was it spontaneous? No, it wasn't at all. It was, it was, you know, an idea that sort of blossomed. I think it, nice. you know, it obviously offered the, offered the opportunity for us to take more ownership on what we were doing and, um, and be mm. a little bit more nimble. Um, which has been great. Also, I think cutting our... We've, we're very lucky with the whole Madman experience. It get, gave us an opportunity to cut our teeth and we made some great shows there too, that Sugar Film and Among Sundays and um, uh, mm. several other documentaries, which we're very proud of. So um, it's, it was a good time for us to to step aside and, and go for it alone, I guess, which, you know, I definitely feel you need to you need to have that experience under your belt before you can really make a good go of a production company because it, it's very tough. There's a heck of a lot of production companies in Australia, let alone the world. So you've got to, you, you've got to have a bit of a head start, I think, to really make a, a solid effort for success. What's one thing that you wish someone had told you before you started in the industry? Um, I suppose the only thing, I feel like I've been lucky. I feel like, I think is don't be worried about doing a variety of things and perhaps going off and um, having different roles in different productions and different scales of shows and different types of shows because it will all inform who you become as a producer or whatever you want to be as you go through the film mm. industry or the TV industry or whatever you're doing because all of that is, is valuable. I think if you, you know, sometimes I talk to younger people and they say, oh, I only want to work in um, environmental factual or something very specific, but they may only be early 20s. And, you know, if you can, you might, if you can do a great job on, a TV drama, that's going to tell you something that may be incredibly useful to you in 20 years' time. So just um, just lap it up, I suppose, and to take what's on offer. It's an interesting question. I mean, I, I, um, I've sort of quite enjoyed the journey of fumbling my way through to a large degree. 
the some of the rules that applied to the work I did prior to becoming a producer certainly are very true of producing. But I've always uh, tried to just have really experienced people around, and you know, hence um, working with Verge obviously comes from such a strong production background. Whereas I came from uh, the marketplaces that were the finance side more so, um, and uh, so it was a it was a very logical fit of experience and skill sets. But in terms of what I wish I'd knew prior, look, I think the, the advantage of having been at Madman for so long and seen so many productions and production companies through was that that was, as, as Virgil said, was a really healthy grounding. Mm. You know, I think it's, uh, you know, we, we certainly went in eyes wide open to the experience. It doesn't mean it's all been easy by any stretch. It doesn't mean we haven't made mistakes, but certainly um, I don't think there were, we, we wanted for lack of, you know, a hot tip. In your experience of production and in your other experience, Nick, in mm. acquisitions and distribution, where do problems usually arise in the stages before and after production? People. <laughs> Personalities. It's, uh, it is absolutely that, you know, and we, I mean, it's true of any business, frankly, but uh, I suppose our three criteria and where we assess whether we get involved in an idea and whether it's a podcast, a feature film, a TV series, God, I don't know, an animated one-off. Do we like the idea? Do we like the people? And then can it make a, you know, can we make a fist of it commercially? Yeah. And, you know, anything we do, even the smallest of ideas, take a hell of a long time. And it's not just that. It's also the fact that if you're doing that, you can't be doing something else. So you really want to like the idea and you really have to like the people. Um, and I say like, it's, you know, beyond that, there's, it's about trust. It's about respect. It's about those sorts of things. And if we've encountered issues that have been trickier to navigate, during a pre or during or post a production it's been because we perhaps you know in hindsight weren't quite as rigorous in assessing some of those 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 key elements um from the get-go and that's not that's not always our fault or the other party's fault either you know life is what it is uh and you get through but i suppose that's where because if you've got a great relationship with the people with whom you're working and an issue arises you, you know you can get through it you know, it might be tricky, but it's tricky for all of you. It's, you yes. know, someone's fault as such. And so I know it's a really simple thing, but certainly when you're first starting out, um, you might make compromises in certain areas just to get the work or just to, just to be in production. And that can really come home and bite you on the ass because, you know, you're often you're living with that film or that production for the next 10 years. Totally. As it's you know it's it's out in the marketplace, it's living a life, it's going to festivals, you're dealing with Polish TV, you're releasing a VHS in Uganda, whatever the thing is, right? But it is ongoing. So that relationship that you formed when you first had that cup of coffee or that beer with someone and said, "Hey, what do you reckon about this?" Six years earlier, that's still going. And so I think that's if you can get those bits right, then you can overcome the other tricky bits. It, it making anything. It's just, it's a complex mixture of the creative with the financial with the legal with with a hell of a lot of time pressure and financial pressure overarching all of that so I think you know just to your question about what problems arise in the stages before a show it is that where you need that real team spirit because one of the things that really holds us up as you're going as you're careering towards a show starting principal photography is if there's delays in decision making that can create hellish bottlenecks and it puts pressure on everybody. So it's just kind of having that really good communication and, and I guess, um, understanding of mutual trust with your creatives so that you can just keep those decisions flowing, feel good about it and, and get the show 
get a show on the road. Absolutely. And it's also too, I mean, if, if, if you guys as a team don't believe it or can't agree on it, you know, even if you're making you know, a low budget film, say it's, a, it's one and a half million bucks, it's still a lot of money. I mean, I don't have it here in my salubrious North Ryde apartment right now. <laughs> um, you know, so it's a lot of money. So you're obviously asking other people for money. Usually, mm-hmm. you know, investors, you know, government bodies, what have you, they will smell it if you as a team don't believe it, or if you as a team aren't, you know, don't have a synchronicity. So that's it's fundamental. It doesn't mean it will always be smooth sailing and you know, sitting in circles holding hands singing kumbaya. That's not the case. But if you don't have the foundation blocks for problem solving together, then you're fucked. One of our earlier guests said something similar, where she said, you know, don't don't say yes to the first person that comes along. You have to. There are all these other things that have to sync up as well at the same time. Um, totally. Otherwise, it's just, yeah. That leads me to my question about how you choose your co-producing partners. Do you, is there some sort of a, is it the vibe? Is it, do you have some sort of a selection criteria that, you know, it's not set, but you both <laughs> kind of know it? Um, how does that work? How do you choose? We have an obstacle course with? that we make them go through. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, involves tricycles, kegs of beer, bongs. It's yeah. pretty comprehensive. Yeah. Sounds Makes fun. Sense. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, only the best make it through, Charlotte. So yeah. Well, Virginia's got to be the best then. <laughs> yeah. What was Virginia's time on the obstacle yeah. course? It must have been pretty oh, well, quick. World record. I don't think it'll ever be beaten. <laughs> Gold for the UK and Australia. That's it. I'll take both. Um, yeah. What was I going to yeah. say? Um, Look, it kind of it. It's usually attached to a project because um, we have done a lot. We do a lot of official and unofficial co-productions, but it's um, where we see a good a value in joining forces with somebody on a particular subject because of the scale of the project, or where this this project's going to shoot, or um, or what, or whether the other people have actually sort of seeded the idea. They may have, say, in a documentary environment, they may have built an incredible relation with a subject. And so when we look at a project, you can see they've already kind of created a huge amount of asset in a particular idea. They just maybe need us to help them realize it. That's the kind of thing that makes a really good partnership, as well as all of our other criteria that we're looking at in terms of, of course, do we, do we think we're going to get along? And is it going to be easy to finance? Or can we see a way of financing it? And, and does it fit within the good thing world, I suppose? So all those things are kind of measures that we we look at when we're when we're also looking at a co-production partner but we love working we love collaborating all of our collaborations have been really good and um and i think as all said, oh. <laughs> 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 no no well you know i think that we've always made you always make a good fist of it you can always find a way no, to, yeah yeah you can just you that's the, but you know producers exist to problem solve i suppose so that's um that's yeah. part of the fun <laughs> um you know so if if you need to uh, you know keep buying your editor bottles of wine to <laughs> make sure they keep supporting whoever's in the in the director's seat, then you do that or or whatever it takes just to to keep trucking along and you know keeping 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 the the production motoring to where it's supposed to go. But it's about that again a bit a bit like Nick and I having a complementary skill set. Same with them too, because there's no good having two producers or two teams that don't bring anything where one's not bringing something different to what we're bringing. Yeah. As a small and nimble production company, co-productions are crucial to us having ability to have scale. You know, if, if it's just us doing a project, 
that's all we're doing. Um, if we can if we can share that work with other partners because it's pragmatic, strategic, logical, whatever the, the reasons are, um, it allows us to maybe have a couple of different things on the go. And frankly, if you're going to have a successful production business, you need to have a slate. You need to have yeah. things that you can continue to develop while you're producing, while you're putting things into the market. You need to have that cycle. Otherwise, it's... It's, it becomes so feast and famine um, that it becomes unsustainable, unless your feasts are massive. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So just, I guess, going on from that as well, what are the important conversations that you have early on with on a project with either business or producing partners or, in fact, with the creatives? Often it's a why. Why are we making it? Why do you want to make this? Why have you written this? Why mm. do you want to direct it? Um you know, you can, you could, because that becomes a guiding principle to some of the decisions that inevitably are made, well, not some, all the decisions that are made throughout the process, you know. Um, we often talk to directors, for example, about after that question of why is, well, then what are the five or six non-negotiables for you right. in this project? Um, and they're the things that we'll fight tooth and nail to protect and preserve. It doesn't mean everything else is up for grabs, by the way, but you sort yeah. of, they become the, the so I think it's, it's understand why you want to make something because you know um, if budgets shift or money falls out or you lose a location or whatever the case may be mm. or a certain investor or stakeholder starts to stop their fees if you're on the same page as to why you're making it you know what you're defending and what you're preserving but it also it's a really quick way of you know you know using Nitram as an example this was a film we all agreed from the get-go was it was about gun control and to a lesser degree it was about uh mental health in our communities and that was they were that was the first conversation we had about why you would even play with material as sensitive as this yeah mm -hmm. you know and um if if, if it was if, if there was a whiff of it because oh, it's a great true crime story and you know underbelly was really successful and that's why we should do this one I think every person involved would have run a mile from whomever had said that, you know. Yeah. So it's what are the guiding principles, what are the reasons why. It, it's a really great way to filter it and it's a really great way to find your abiding principles for the project. I like your point about the five or six non-negotiables as well because mm. then there's no miscommunication down the line. Like, Correct. Oh, I thought I was going to have final cut. Oh, well, actually. Yeah. Asking those sort of questions, um, especially with more emerging filmmakers, is good to also then sort of lay on the table what is feasible and reasonable within the marketplace. Because if, if somebody comes to us with a, a highly expensive sci-fi set in the jungle um, with, you know, hordes of extras and it's going to cost a fortune and, and they've never directed anything before, it's how you manage that, that expectation and say, this is unlikely to be something you will direct unless you go off and direct three other things first, you know, or, or so they understand the expectation of a market about talent and reputation, I suppose, or, or your experience, because those things really matter. And I think sometimes we, when you, we talk to, to newcomers, it can, you know, it's about recalibrating those expectations as well, which we're always happy to do. Um, but also if, that would be a red flag to us if somebody had non-negotiables that weren't realistic. So a high level of realism is important to us. It seems like you're producing documentaries, you're producing narrative, you're not actually stuck to any one particular format, but you're looking mm -hmm. at really the story and the producing partners and if it works for good thing. But in terms of if you're thinking about it from like a business commercial side of things, 
Um, which one's easier? Oh, they're all easy. They're all easy. <laughs> it's dead. The whole thing's dead easy, you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> We've. I mean, it's easy to finance documentaries potentially because there's less money to find. Um, but then again, they usually have less of a blue sky commercial outcome as well for the marketplace. So, you know, the ability to raise funds is metered by that. Um, I'd say that, you know, we've had really simple, straightforward, relatively speaking, um, production experiences with, I mean, if I look again at NITRAM, which is an incredibly tricky thing to navigate in terms of the financing and in terms of the, the cultural sensitivities, particularly in Australia. So that was, that was uh, uh, really, really tricky. But the actual production experience, once we actually got boots on the ground and sort of pre, um, and this is dealing with COVID as well, mm. um, it was one of the simplest and smoothest and most enjoyable production experiences I've ever been a part of, you know, um, which is a tribute to the team as well as, as much as anything else. But, and you'd, you'd expect the opposite of that given everything um, with COVID then as an overlay. And we've had documentaries that have been a real struggle, you know, even though they, the budget was you know, 20% of the budget we had for Nitram. And again, that wasn't the fault of people, it was just the, the nature of the, that project and, and the material we're dealing with, et cetera. So from a business point of view, we try and line, we certainly as, as we get older and wiser and cleverer, we look to see those, see those things, the, the tricky things ahead of time. Um, to manage that. But uh, yeah, I don't know that you could separate it from doc to feature. Um, it's more of a project to project. But it's certainly, I suppose, as soon as we're sort of thinking seriously about a project, you're always doing that kind of back of an envelope finance plan, thinking, <clears throat> how's this going to work? What can we realistically expect from the various parts of the market? And, um, you know, that again, it falls into the kind of the, the weighing of up of if we can do a show, because if, 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 it, if we see there's going to be a big gap, we're just going to have to either rethink about it in a different format. Maybe maybe it's a podcast. Maybe it's something else to get it, get the idea started. Mm. Um, mm. But, yeah, it's just, yeah, it's definitely the finance is always very quick to come into the conversation so that we, so we can so we can make plans. Yeah, and that's not just a conversation about how much can good thing plunder from a, from a budget. It's also, you know, when we have a conversation with the creative team, or a writer or a director solo, we're making obligations to them that we can deliver on their vision or on the agreed vision. Um, and we can't do that if we can't raise the money. So it's, Virgie's bang on. It's, um, it's absolutely part and parcel of those early discussions is how realistically can we raise the cash to do this properly? Do you have like a time frame within which you expect to get a project up? Or is it like, is it like if it's not up and running within two years, three years, we scrap it? Or is it, we play it by ear, project by project? It varies. I mean, it's it depends on, a lot of things do take, they, they do take a long time to develop and they, and they can move around and take different forms as different partners become involved. But I suppose I was, I was reading that quote again the other day, fail early, fail fast. I think Andrew Stanton at Pixar said that, because it is that kind of thing where you want to know whether this thing can really go. And, Often you can tell quite quickly if a story that might have worked three or four years ago just doesn't have the currency today, or there's been something done, some, something's been done that's too similar. So, you know, when we're weighing up a project, all of those things come into it as well as the, the originality. Is it too like anything else? And how quickly can we get it developed? Because, you know, if, if 
if somebody comes with us just with a kernel of an idea, you know that's going to could be if it's really worth it, it's good, but it could be like a four year process. Whereas if somebody mm. comes to you and they've got their script under their arm and the script's pretty good, they they are some they've got a level of recognised talent and you know you can you can probably go and attract talent because the work is so good. Then you mm. sort of you set you sort of hedge your bets that that's going to be something that we can do in the next two years. But it is it's it's a long. Yeah. It always sounds like acres of time, but it's just the nature of the game. It is, and I suppose it's it's also too sometimes the a delay in a project might well be you know. We've got a great project with a particular writer or director, and that director then picks up a TV show. And so, what might be on the front burner of the development stove goes to a back burner and sits there idling for a while, and and other things get given priority. And likewise with us, as I said before, we constantly like to have several things in development. Um, you never know, never know quite which one might boil over, you know. And so all of a sudden, cast X says yes, and the thing becomes financeable in a heartbeat. And when that happens, that becomes your priority. It has to become your priority. And a couple of others may well then get parked or put into idle. Um, I suppose one of the advantages of um, having the, the, so many co-productions and the two of us plus a couple of other good thingers is that ideally we can always have a couple of things in production at once. But, yeah, certainly sometimes things get, will get put in a holding pattern whilst other things are getting done too. So, uh, yeah, I think Verge is right. It depends on the projects. We've got, we've got a couple of projects in our slate that have been there for four or five years and we still love them dearly. It's about, um, you know, finding the, the right thing to, to tip them over. You do need like yeah. a, and I know the, the funding bodies work a lot like this. You, they want a, a, like a mixed portfolio and we have to have, keep having a bit of a mixed portfolio because you don't know what's going to appeal to, you know, you might be talking to one broadcaster or one SVOD or as a, a sales company, what's going to float their boat. So it's great to have a, a reasonable mixture of stuff. And I was saying to somebody the other day, whenever I'm watching the news, I, I end up saying to my husband, oh, we, we're doing something to do with that and that and that because you seem to have um you know lots on the boil which but it's great it's really you know we're lucky with it. it's very inspiring and um and um, mm. keeps us on our toes definitely i'm sure i mean i've only been on your website and i'm sure that is you know a tenth of what you actually are working on at the moment at any given time not tenth but certainly we don't have hundreds of projects but yeah we do have a spread we do have a spread and, and, and similar, you know, it's because it's their ideas we like or they're people we want to work with. Um, and we do like, uh, I suppose, we one of the principles we do go by, and it's, it's been true of nearly every project we've done so far, is we like, we like to refer to the Trojan horse principle mm. where, you know, whilst it might be a bit of entertainment on the outside, it's got some, some bigger ideas stuffed inside it. And that's been more obtuse in certain things like Sugar Film or 2040 or Australian Dream where there's sort of, very much a, a cause or an issue or a social justice piece at the at the heart of it that's writ large. But, you know, there's there's other films we've done where we feel that those sorts of things have still been very present mm. um, at the heart of it. Do you Are you finding that there's a bit of a brain drain of Australian talent going overseas? Or is, it, is there still a lot happening in Australia, emerging filmmakers and writers coming up with, you know, great projects? Or are they all going to make Black Widow now for Marvel. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if Kate Shortland's um, up and coming anymore. No. Um, <laughs> but, but oh, look, I think Australia is a small marketplace. There's no question. Um, but the world's a smaller place too. Always been super conscious of the fact that when we make a film, we're making it an Australian film, but it's we compete with people who speak English and people who speak American as well. 
Um, but that also gives us the ability to tap talent from those places. So uh, I think it's just, it's being, uh, being based in Melbourne, Australia is something we enjoy, but we've also up until the current pandemic, um, we've also made sure that we've got a presence at least a few times a year in the international marketplace because that's the market in which we work. Um, we don't see yeah. ourselves as an Australian production company, we see ourselves as a production company. At what point do you know when to drop a project in development? When it's obvious, I suppose. <laughs> and, I, and I can't, because it can, be a, it can be a range of things. It could be that you get to a point where you realise you can't work with these people anymore. Um, where, as Verge said before, um, you're developing an idea about uh, the Williams sisters, then you hear about King Richard. Yeah. Um, you, you know, so there's, there's two in the market, and that, that almost happened to us with Adam, the Adam Goods film we made, Australian Dream, a few years back. Mm -hmm. um, or if you just hit too many roadblocks in terms of the financing opportunities. Um, sometimes that means you drop it all together or you, with your good grace, you know, hand the project back to the creators and say, look, we don't think we can do it. Um, but, uh, and sometimes it's a case of, hey, let's just park this for a little while. Um, the time's not right. Um, but as Virg said, sometimes it's the, the quick no is sometimes better than a slow yes. And, and so if, if you do realise that it, it's, it's best to kill it as soon as you do. Is it a difficult decision to make? You know, I think it's a, a big priority for Nick and I to always remain on good terms with anybody we ever work with in any capacity, mm. even if we're only getting to a certain point in development with them. But um, it's it's difficult. Things change, you know. Even when I think back to those days of Save Your Legs, the cinema market and the sales market was so much sort of richer then and even the government money that the money screen Australia had to give away um, or invest was was more plentiful. So the model of getting films up then was somewhat softer. And even in that period to where we are now, it's um, it's not so easy just to sort of go, yes, we can take on a first time director with a project that really needs five or six million dollars to make it to screen because mm -hmm. we can't necessarily work, you know, work, work out an avenue to finance for that, it, depending on who they are and what they've done before. Um, mm. So, you know, the, they, the, the sands have shifted a bit, I suppose, in that respect. But it's, it's not a nice thing. To, you know, it's, it's hard when we have to drop a, drop a project and there's a level of disappointment for someone, but it, it's, it doesn't do anyone any good to keep alive an idea or, or keep pursuing something that isn't, we just can't see a way to get it made, you know, so... And, that, and that's that's a tough conversation. But again, you know, sometimes in the factual space, it becomes easier to divert off into something lower budget, different format. But, you know, when it's when it's when it's done, it's kind of done, unfortunately. Do you have to balance your slate like in a financial commercial sense? Are you looking at it and going, we really need to make this one because it's a bit more of a commercial home run than this one? Or do you literally just look at what's in front of you and say, which one do we want to make? Ideally, the two go hand in hand. <laughs> Ideally. Yeah, and, and to date we've, had, we've been fortunate in that regard. I, would, I don't know how well we would make something, knowing myself and knowing Virgie pretty well, if we were just doing it for the dough. Yeah. It's, it's, not, it's not what we got into making stuff. And I also, uh, maybe like naively, but I certainly believe that if with the experience we've got and, and, and the time we've had in, you know, both in producing and in the marketplace. Um, if we really like it, it's got something. Um, mm -hmm. And if we really like it, we've got a good chance of making it well. And if we make it well, then it will find a home. Yeah. Um, 
And I think to a degree we kind of have to believe that because otherwise, why else would we do it? Yeah. Um, you know, and, and again, I don't want to sound naive. It's, this is not a pipe dream. It's, it's worked so far, you know. Um, it doesn't mean we're retiring tomorrow, um, but equally it also means we'll probably never retire because we're only doing shit we really like. Yeah, no, it's yeah. good. And it's the way it should be. You've got to enjoy what you do and you've got to be proud of what you make because there's no guarantee that it will make money, but it's always going to be out there. Well, it's, 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 I always, you know, at a rap party at the end of a production, you know, I always would say to the gang, you know, let's celebrate what we've done to date. Um, let's celebrate what we've made because we know what it is. We know how hard we've worked. We know how special we think it is. And at some point you hand it over to the marketplace and then the scoreboard gets put up and whether yes. it's box office or ratings, what have you. And all of a sudden something you really loved, you might be, you know, there are people I know who are really embarrassed about something they put their whole heart and soul into for two or three years because it didn't work. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't know, I, don't, I, I think you've got to really, if you, if you really love it, then it doesn't really matter. Um, it matters on a business sense, of course it does. You, you need to make money so you can make the next one. Mm. Um, but if you can enough in terms of how you finance it, at least you're sort of taking a fee out of it to, to make sure you can get up the next morning, go to work and, and start again. Our final question that we ask all our guests, what does bankable mean to you? Virginia Whitwell. <laughs> I do do some banking. Um, it's, 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 it's always That's not a either. <laughs> um, ta- it, it's talent and ideas. I mean, it's sort of, you know, there's a, somebody, I said Netflix used the term undeniable about how they assess projects. And that, to be honest, it is a really good way to... Uh, to, to to run that question through your head when somebody presents an idea and you're kind of trying to tease out how it could be bankable, whereas if it's if the talent and the and the concept is so in your face and it's and you know it has to be made, that's when that's that's really exciting and that's that's what I would call bankable. Nicholas, oh, no, I, 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 yeah, as usual, you've said it perfectly, Virgie. I, I, it's it's people and ideas, um, you know, and I think if you've got the right combination of those and you can finance anything. Movies Inc. The Business of Film is a podcast produced and hosted by us, Sarah McFarlane and Charlotte Howley. Our music is Pixel Drips by Marvig. Please visit our website at moviesincpod.com. Follow us on Instagram at moviesincpod and follow, subscribe and review the Movies Inc. podcast wherever you get your podcasts.